Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours? Ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who do not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? Emigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God? he cried. I will tell you, we have killed him. You and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the seas? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually, backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not strained as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of an empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? Gods, to decompose, God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murder of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death? Under our knives, who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for us to cleanse ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed. And whoever is born after us for the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. Here, the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners. They too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern on the ground and it broke into pieces and went out. I have come too early, he said then. My time is not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way, still wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of men. Lightning and thunder require time. The light of the stars requires time. Deeds, though done, still require time to be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than the most distant stars, yet they have done it themselves. It has been related further that on the same day, the madman forced his way into several churches and there struck up his requiem, Alternum Deo. Let out and called to account, he is said always to have replied nothing but, what after all these churches now if they are not the tombs and sepulchres of God? What I've just read is a parable that was written by a man named Frederick Nietzsche called the Parable of the Madman. It addresses the issue, or it asserts the fact upon which he based his philosophy, and that is God is dead. And this is where many atheists, many philosophers rest their case, that there is no existence of God. And this is the very topic upon which we are going to dive into. And by the end of this, we hopefully get the 
theological, philosophical wheels turning in your mind. You're listening in to Sparks of Truth, where it only takes a spark to start a fire. And I'm your host, Kenneth Rivera. Let me just give you a little insight of who we're actually going to be talking to. The guest speaker for today is going to be my friend Joseph Cadiz, who is also my teacher. I have the privilege of having him as a friend and someone that I can discuss anything with. And so we're going to be diving into the existence of God, hopefully coming up with some concrete evidence and sound logic. So the quintessential question that has pervaded everyone at some point in their life is, does God really exist? Is there something more to life than the reality that we often find ourselves in. And I believe that Frederick Nietzsche, as quoted in the beginning of the episode, kind of the clip of it, really seeks to, in a sense, distinguish, to to exterminate, I think that's the better word, to exterminate the idea, the possibility of the existence of God I mean, he coins the phrase or more, more or less popularizes the phrase and, and the phrase is highly contributed to him that God is dead. I mean, he uses very poetic language to describe basically a murder scene. And he doesn't pin this just on himself, but he also pins this on the society around him, which is quite intriguing because there is some truth to that. And not in the sense of, you know, from our Judeo-Christian perspective, you know, that God is dead, but the fact that society has, in many cases, sought to eradicate the thought of, of God. They have sought to kill the, the very notion that there is a God. I mean, atheists spend their time debating different Christians that hold that view. And their question, which I know we'll talk, uh, talk about a little later, you know, whenever considering that the, there is maybe a possibility that God exists, it, it always is like, they kind of put us in a corner. And the question is, is if your God truly does exist, then why does he allow so much evil, so much suffering? Why does he allow this, this heinous emotion and action to exist in this world? But what are the implications that that Frederick Nietzsche's parable, the Madman Parable, really bring to light to you as you kind of taking a look at this this parable, probably maybe even your first time even seeing it, but what are the implications that you can derive from this just by reading it? You know, Kenny, this was the first time um, I've heard of this parable. I've read this parable, but the phrase God is dead definitely is is popular in modern consciousness right now. Um, and it's something that I think would resonate with a lot of people, young and old, um, in this time. But the first thing that really stuck out to me in this parable is the language. Like you put it, 
he poetically describes a murder scene. But what's more interesting to me is that it is a murder. Yeah. That he describes this, the, yeah. the, the absence of God or the non-existence of God as a murder. It wasn't incidental. It wasn't accidental. It was a straight up murder. And he says, all of us are murders. And that God is, has bled to death under our knives. That's really vivid and graphic. Um, uh, it's a very vivid and, and graphic description of, of God being dead. He's not just dead. He's murdered. So I find that really interesting. I really like how when it's, or at least, you know, I find it interesting when he describes the, the fact that he has killed God and then he also pins it on society as well. You know, you have killed God. We are all his murderers. So he, he kind of places this in a group setting. So it's not like, well, I have killed God but you have killed God. I mean, because you see someone that is seeking God. You, he, he, they're, they're saying, you know, I seek God, I seek God. And they're making mm. jokes about it. So obviously the crowd of this person is kind of entering into, you know, the, the, the idea, the platform of thinking that they have already inherited, they've already, you know, asserted in their minds is a, is a type of thinking that doesn't believe in God. And their response proves that. Obviously the guy that's mm. coming in, you know, seeking to know where God is, you know, I seek God, I want to know God, like whatever, whatever's going on through this mind, he's entering into what, what we would call a very atheistic or deistic or, you know, someone that doesn't really believe that there is a God and, and they're making jokes about it. I mean, that was pretty, pretty blatant there. And so now this madman jumps in all of a sudden and he kind of flips the coin on them because as they're making jokes to this, what we would call a Christian, because he's seeking God, he's, he's, he's really thinking about and, and desiring for the existence of a God, those around him are making these jokes, and Frederick Nietzsche flips the coin through the character of this madman, and the madman now points it at them, you've killed God, we've killed God. He describes yeah. it in, in detail, and when he describes it in detail, I mean, he makes it as known as this is like a very, you know, this is a, this is a big act. This is something huge. This is not something that is just, you know, simple to, to do. I mean, he starts off by saying, but how do we do this? I mean, he's explaining it now. We've killed him, you and I, all of us are his murderers, but how? I, I like the questions that he asked because he's almost saying that when, you, when we have done this, we have made a big ripple within reality because he uses language like, how could we mm -hmm. drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we were unchained, uh, when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whether is it moving now? Whether are we moving all from? So these, these questions almost, you know, it's like, okay, now that we've killed God, you know, there's a huge ripple effect now. And I believe he's still in, in some sense addressing that there was some sovereignty that God had. Because now that we've removed the idea of God, there are so many implications that he is even highlighted himself because of this dastardly deed you know has it not become colder because of the fact that there is no sun you know we've we've done this act and this has affected reality and i believe that, that that is truly the case because many people who eradicate the the idea of god you know in many cases we see a lot of cases of people who really eradicate the idea of god and even eradicate the idea of morality and they go literally insane Mm. 
They, mm. they, they don't know what to distinguish between good and evil. And I believe that Frederick Nietzsche, while he's, you know, promoting this ideal view that God doesn't exist, we are essentially now gods because we have done this, this act. We have, we have had and mustered up the, the strength to, to kill something and someone that has pervaded through all human history because philosophers before him were dealing with the God question. They were trying to figure this out themselves. Yet he was the bold one to say, well, all right, while you're trying to figure him out, I'm just going to tell you straightforward, we've killed him. Mm. That's why you can't figure it out. Essentially, if I, were, if I were in his shoes, I would be like, well, if you were trying to figure it out, um, it's too late now because we've killed him. Yeah. And I like how you, how you put that. It's, as, as someone that has read this or is reading this for the first time, one thing is very clear. This is a big deal. Mm-hmm. This is a big deal. He, he describes this murder as the murder of all murders. And how, how are we going to comfort ourselves now? Mm. And, and, you know, murder, we know murder is intentional. Yeah. Murder is intimate. It's, again, it's not an accident. It didn't, you know, happen incidentally. It's a purposeful thing. Um, there are statistics that say um, that murders, if you are murdered, um, and hopefully no one is, of course, and, and that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when, if, if, if a murder occurs, it's usually by someone that's close to you, not by mm-hmm. a stranger, not by someone that you don't know of or, or, or not close to. It's someone that you know well. So it's really, really interesting that it, you know, number one, it's such a big deal. Number two, it's a murder. It's a murder of all murders. And even more interesting than all of that, why, why should we need to comfort ourselves in this instance? It's, it's really, it's, it's an interesting way to phrase all of this. Um, I, I, I find it really intriguing, especially from where I think Frederick Nietzsche is coming from. Mm. And I like that you pointed out that, that part, how, because he says that in, in one of the paragraphs, how shall we comfort itself, the murder of all murders. So there's a stain of guilt. I mm. mean, what's, what's up with the stain of guilt? I mean, if the whole ideal that God doesn't exist, what, what is the stain of guilt in, in the sense of murdering something that was so easily uh, dismissible? Something that, that could have easily been proven that he doesn't exist. Why use even yeah. language that, that describes a murder act? And like you said, you know, it wasn't an accident. He's, he's spending at length's time to craft together this poem, which in many of its implications has shaped the Western society today. I mean, mm-hmm. postmodernism is, is, is kind of like at the, at the climax. And there's so yep. many different variables that kind of spawn from that. It isn't just, you know, postmodern perspective, but, you know, the ideal is that we can interpret truth as ourselves. We're, mm-hmm. we're essentially placing ourselves in a place of, of God because now we jurisdict what truth is. And so this poem has made quite a, a heavy impact, not only the poem, but many of the assertions he's made. But what I found interesting is, is why are you going to such great lengths to, to describe a murder scene? And why do you even desire to be comforted? What, what mm. need is there to be comforted? You're doing this purposely. Like you said, it wasn't an accident. It's not like, oopsie, I just kind of, you know, place my knife into someone's heart. This is like, I am purposely seeking to end your life. And mm. he even jokingly says, you know, do we not smell as yet of the divine composition? Gods mm. too decompose. You know, obviously we know that things decompose after they die. So he's almost like making this 
this really dark humor. Like, don't you smell his decomposition? Isn't it not in your in your realm of what war you're at? Because you're obviously making fun of this guy because he he's seeking God, but you don't realize that there is blood on your garments because of the act that you have done. Whether he's addressing this, and, and most likely he's going to be, I believe he was, you know, addressing this in the most symbolic, very, very philosophical way, because that's what society has, has essentially done. Obviously, no one has seen God, per se, to actually kill him. But he's saying through your through your actions, through your questions, and through your mockings and, 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 and jesting and all that stuff, that's the knife that you have taken and killed God because now many people have followed the same pattern that you're you're following after or what you have kind of placed within their minds and he kind of he kind of goes on to say you know and I love this paragraph I love this paragraph because there's there's so much meaning to it he says here the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners and they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment he had at last threw his lantern on the ground and broke it into pieces and went out I have come too early have you ever like pondered like what what he meant by that? <laughs> like I've come too early. Like they're making fun of this guy. He's obviously a guy that's seeking God. They're joking around. This other person comes into the middle of the scene and just kind of flips the coin on them, tells them they're the murderers, we are the murderers, and then describes the murder scene. And then right afterward, it's almost as if they're like, "What just happened?" Like they they don't even have any words to say. And then he says a phrase that just, to me, it, at this moment, it's like, what did he mean by that? He's like, I've come too early. I've come too early. As if they had not fully realized the implications of their own actions. And that paragraph in particular really intrigued me because obviously this is all written by one man. Mm-hmm. And, and and the way that he's he's framing his the main thought what i believe is the main thought of of this of this story of this parable he's framing it in such a way that really it, it heightens the the existence of god in my mind because me too why 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 be that air mm-hmm. why why stab at air um why call this the greatest deed of all it's, it, it all just leads to the point, logically, in my mind, that there must be a God to kill and a substantial God at that if all, all of this is required, all of mm. this, this, this framing and, 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 and just the, how big of a deal it is in this specific story. Frederick Nietzsche, a prolific writer and an impactful philosopher. Yet the core of his ideals left many with the end result of hopelessness. All this talk about the death of God, yet the end of the poem bleeds with depression. No happy ending, no hope, just misery. This can make a reader wonder, what was really going on to the mind of Nietzsche? You may be grappling with these questions, as well as many have. Well, let's get back to the conversation and see how it ends. And like you said, this is this is all written by one guy. So although you have a, a lot of characters involved in the story, in the narrative of, of the parable that he's trying to place in the minds of anyone that really dares to read, 
and takes mm -hmm. time to uh, analyze and assess what the, the meaning of it, of it is, I definitely see a war between the mind, um, specifically in his mind. The reason I say that is because you have you have three groups of people here, or at least three three main characters. You have the the person that first comes in and says, "I seek God, I seek God." Then you have the group of people who make fun of that guy. Then you have the madman who says, you know, what he says in in, in the description of the murder scene. And mm. I would almost dare to say this is this is me venturing off. This is me just really casting a, an ideal. But I would venture to say that those are three phases of his own life, probably. Mm. The mm. first one being because it, it's it's ironic enough because he came from a a um a Christian background. Yeah, he, he had he his father and I think his grandfather were also. They were they were ministers of the gospel. So it's interesting because the first character that hits the scene is someone that obviously is desiring God. So I believe that with one phase of his life, he, he had that desire. I seek God. I seek God. I seek God. And whatever was happening in the midst of his life, livelihood and whatever just kind of twisted it. You know, he came to a point in his own life that he was like, you know, where is God then? If you're looking for him so long, you know, now he's seen other people's in his position in his primary state where it's like, where's God? Well, where, where can he be? And he kind of, you know, may have jumped into this ideal of, of uh, making fun of them. And then he got into this most, you know, nirvana state to say, if we were using the kind of like this heightened state of reality, like I finally understand it. And that is like, and he's addressing his almost like that middle section of himself, that having you realize that you've killed God, mm. your jokes, your jests, your, your whatever you're doing in, in ridiculing this person, you don't realize that in reality, you're asking where where is he and you're making these jokes but you're the actual murderer and i believe this murder is is the almost diminishing of the conscience towards the ideal that that a god even exists so when i really mm. read this apart from its philosophical implications i'm digging deeper and i love to do this whenever i talk to people is not only seeking to answer a question but understanding why is the question even evolving from their mind because it's not as if you know, it's just a random question or this is random desire to write a poem about killing God. You know, it's not like you woke up one morning. Oh, you know, I feel like writing a poem about the death of God. You know, I just suddenly feel like doing that. I just had that desire. No, this is obviously an ongoing battle in his mind. And he feels that it's his duty to address it. And I believe, like I said before, that these are three phases of his life. And I believe that myself, I've gone through this, these three phases where at first I'm seeking God. Secondly, I'm now making fun of people who are seeking God because I was in that position. And then evolving into that third state, which I, I no longer am in, but now saying, God's dead. Like, why are you even venturing off to, to pursue? But I, I spent a lot of my life trying to get rid of the thought and notion of God, which in his mind, he's spending a lot of time. It's like you said, why are you beating that air? Why are you going to so much trouble to disprove something that is easily disprovable? It's something that can easily be dismissed. Mm -hmm. I believe so many young people are grappling and, and really tackling the existence of God, especially those who may have not even grown up with a Christian background. But if, if God really wasn't real, why does the mind so naturally want to ponder upon the existence of something that obviously is dismissible? We don't ponder too much with the philosophical implications of Santa Claus. I mean, mm. we don't wonder, well, Santa Claus, you know, possibly may exist. 
and what are the implications of, of him or the tooth fairy you don't go throughout your life just constantly wondering for over like 20 years about the possibility of tooth fairy existing because there's no there's really no depth to the tooth fairy except for receiving a coin under your pillow there's so much more depth in considering the existence of god don't you think and i think we all know that innately because like you said if santa doesn't truly exist if he and and he doesn't of course but if he doesn't truly exist what are the implications of that i don't get presents during christmas from a dude that comes down my chimney i get presents from my parents and other people but it comes from them and not from this dude if I don't believe the tooth fairy exists, then then I don't get the coin under my pillow. Though that's the implication. But inherently, innately, I think we understand. Once we say God doesn't exist, that's a big deal. And in my mind, this parable, this story, is describing a struggle. Like you're saying, it's it's describe it's, it's describing a struggle. And and maybe for, for me, it's not even phases, but maybe all of these different things are happening. In, in Frederick Nietzsche's mind at the same time and it's just he's fighting with it he's fighting against it and the imagery I think just just shows that there, there's so much violence again we are the this is we are murder all of us are murderers God has bled under the death of our knives he throws his lantern to the ground towards the end there's it's I, it's just so clear that there is a struggle happening here within this this person's mind and you do have to ask yourself why did this story come out the way that it did why didn't he just write, you know, God doesn't exist, period, full stop, it's done. Um, there's nothing to kill because there, because he doesn't exist, but he wrote it in this way. He wrote it specifically in a way that describes a struggle, a struggle in, I think, a man's mind between the existence of God and and what implications that ultimately has. And I think he alludes to it. If, if God doesn't exist, it, there's a ripple in reality and not just reality broadly, but our own reality. We have to become gods unto ourselves. And what implications does that have in our own lives? Um, what, how does that change our, our, our thinking and the way that we perceive really everything? And all of that, all of that struggle, all of that turmoil is contained, I think, in this story, in this parable, which leads me to the conclusion, ultimately, that there, that there is a God if he must be contended with in this way, at least in one person's mind. Yeah, and and even looking at this from the atheistic point of view, because you know, us as Christians believe that God ultimately gives us hope. There, there's there's so many implications in believing that there is a God. But even down to his deepest core, if I was trying to, and I have even, you know, contemplated these thoughts because I although I came from a Christian background, I I played around with various different viewpoints, whether it was uh, deism whether it was a agnostic, a atheist, because I really wanted to find what really was going to give me hope. Ultimately, it was, it was, it was going to be emotion-based because I wanted to feel loved. I wanted to have a reason to live. I wanted to, you know, experience a, a joy. And, you know, kind of circling through all these notions, you know, I, atheism really didn't compel me, didn't really uh, attract me because although you had all these supposedly scientific you know, data to prove whatever they wanted to prove. Um, yes, I can, I can be assured or somewhat assured to that, it, but it doesn't give me any hope. It doesn't, in, in the deepest desire, it didn't give me any hope. Okay, I believe in the Big Bang. What hope does that give me? Yes, the, the origin of humans came from the evolution of primates. Okay, if we really want to go that line, 
what hope does that really give you? I mean, if we're really treading that line, you know, Darwin's theory of natural selection says that, you know, we are primarily, or at least our ecosystem is survival of the fittest. And so if someone rapes your sister, who cares? I mean, he was a survival of the fittest. So, you know, I always like to look at things within within its logical consistency. And not only that, within the natural thing that we want is love. And so atheism at its natural core just didn't compel me or didn't attract me because there was no sense of hope. Yes, there's this this somewhat, you know, deep thinking. And I do believe that they're asking a lot of questions. And I respect questions. I respect anyone that has questions. And I respect any position that's given. But ultimately, apart from its logical consistency, I also want hope. I mean, we look at the pandemic we're living in, and I, I'm pretty sure you would want hope. You don't want, you know, your mm. wife to get infected. You don't want, you know, God forbid, your family to get infected and to, and to die. And so, yes, you're holding on to this, these views upon which you you assert yourself on, but there's no hope. And so I believe that's the, really the desire that I had when I was, you know, trying to, you know, get through life is, is this hope. And you look at the life of Frederick Nietzsche, you know, his, his ideals and, you know, many people would, would pay, place him in the ideal of nihilism, which, which basically relegates life to useless. And all these implications of killing God and removing God's existence and, you know, all of that is specifically there for going to leave it as there is no hope in life. There is no reason it's useless. It, you know, we're governed by our own circumstances there. Who cares? I guess that's, that's where I really boil it down. Who cares? Mm-hmm. What, what hope is there and I don't feel comfortable as a human being to to stay in that mindset because any natural person would have to admit in some shape or form that they desire to be loved they desire to have a sense of hope mm-hmm. I mean we coin the phrase at least this, this this word is is prominent in our vocabulary especially with the COVID-19 uncertainty I mean, if, if, if we're really just kind of treading on God doesn't exist, there is no hope and, and so on, well, who cares about COVID-19? Who cares about the uncertainty? Because I mean, that's just life. That's just the cards mm-hmm. that we're dealt with. We got to get over it and, you know, so on and so forth. I'm not going to respond like that. I'm genuinely going to have a sense of, of uh, compassion and sympathy to, towards those, especially the medical professionals who are going around the clock, dedicating their, their life to, to saving people and even risking and many of them dying because of the work they've done. I have compassion for that. I have compassion over those that are sincerely mourning over the death of many of their own relatives. And I believe that compassion, many people that want to really follow this line of atheism or even just kind of annihilating God really have to remove the the whole problem of evil, the whole problem of suffering, because your question always leads to why is God allowing suffering? Well, who cares if, if there is a God or if there isn't a God, you know, your ultimate thing is that there is no hope and there is, and if there is no hope, who cares about suffering and who cares about yeah. good, who cares about evil? Because it's useless. It's yeah. useless. Yeah. And that's exactly what I was thinking is, is at first the, the question of why, why does God allow so much suffering? At first that question sounds, oh, that sounds deep. You know, that, that sounds like a really good question, mm-hmm. but I think a better question is exactly what you said. Why do you care that there's so much suffering? Like why, why does it matter to you? And that connects with, you know, wanting to be loved, um, showing compassion. And, and if you're asking the question, why do you care? Like, why do I even care that there's so much suffering? If there is no God, if there is no moral standard, then it shouldn't matter that there is suffering. But we do care. I think inherently we do care 
that there is suffering in this world and we want to do something about it, the question becomes, why do you care? And then that goes into what I, I think is, is, is the ultimate question is, is who put that care there? Mm. Who put that desire there? Mm. Was it your parents? Was it something you watched or is it something deeper than, than all of that? Why do you mm. care about love um, beyond, uh, you know, different chemicals going off in your brain? Why do you care that? And, and even more importantly, why do you care that other people are suffering if it doesn't have anything to do with you? If you're doing mm. fine in, in, you know, wherever you're at, why do you care that there's so much suffering? Those are the questions that I think are really important when discussing uh, these types of topics. Mm. And I, I really think that this, this ideal of morality, these ideals of emotion, really stick a huge prick in the sides of anyone that really wants to assert that whether it's nihilism, whether it's atheism, whether it's even agnosticism is, is true. I mean, agnosticism, at least you give them credit because they, they are identifying with the fact that there is a God and they're pinning, you know, God as one that doesn't care. At least there is that existence there. But for the most part, you know, with with others that, you know, remove any God or anything like that, I mean, they have to remove morality. I mean, there is no such thing as intelligent design. There is no such thing as any of that because, I mean, everything just happened all, all of a sudden. And, yep. and then, you know, like you said, why do you care? And just the answer that question, you're acknowledging that there is care in you. Because the natural response to me, if you were to ask me, why do I care? Let's say we're arguing about something, why do you care? My natural response is going to be, well, I care because, you know, it's natural. You know, I care mm -hmm. because, so you're acknowledging you care. You're acknowledging that this emotion called care exists in your mind and exists, I will venture to say, in your heart. And because of that, then I'm going to ask you, even before you even answer, where did that care come from? Yeah. How do you explain yeah. that care? And that ultimately, you know, revolves or brings us back to the question that there is the possibility of a God existing. There is a possibility of someone creating. Who put that there? Well, why do you even say who put that there? It's if it was put there. No, because you want to acknowledge that someone put it there. Someone placed it there. So, you're, so your natural response, even though you want to eliminate it, is that there is a creator, that there is a maker. However you identify that that maker, that's fine, but you know, that's it's your, your choice. But the fact that you identify that there is a maker, and that this maker has the ability to emplace something that is not tangible in the sense of, it's not like you can hold care in your hand per se. This is something that's unexplainable. You know, as, as far as the, the, the love factor, the, the evil factor, I mean, we see these things. These are, in a sense, you know, you can't see it with a, with a microscope. This is something that genuinely comes out of us. So we're wondering who could be capable enough to create something, to wire something, to have these type of responses which once again leads you to the idea that there is a maker and that there is a possibility that there is something or someone out there that has created us in such a way that we have these impulses and desires and yeah. that's really the core of it you know i remember watching a series of of lectures and, and understanding different people who have tackled with these questions. I remember listening to, I think it was Einstein who, when listening to music and it's in its beautiful form, I think it was a, a classical show or, you know, an orchestral piece. 
and he had he had no choice but to acknowledge the the existence of god i mean it's 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 we're kind of in awe in many cases when we when we see a lot of these things whether it is the the complexity of snowflakes or the complexity of a mother's yearning love for a child or the complexity of a of a canine's love for their master and how these canines will literally when they see their 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 beloved master die how they would go to the grave and lay at their tombstone i mean it's like wow mm. how do you explain that without considering the god question and the fact that you consider the God question is that there is that desire to acknowledge a God. I would venture to say that. I know it's a huge leap to make in many people's minds, but I would venture to say that, that, that you have to acknowledge the God question. The fact that you're acknowledging the God question is because there is a God-shaped hole in your mind that you're desiring to fill. Yeah. And that's it. That's exactly it. And we can even see it in this parable. Frederick Nietzsche makes it very clear. Like You alluded to this earlier that there, there, is, there is a sense of guilt after this murder. He says, who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? And that's you know, a religious word. I think purposely he put that there. Oh, what yeah. festival of atonement? What sacred game shall we have to invent? You're talking about a God-shaped hole. Well, what I'm thinking is, why, why do we need to replace something if that if 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 nothing existed in the first place if god didn't exist in the first place why do we need to replace with some replace that with something there was nothing to begin with and even here he's admitting like hey we've killed something we've taken something out and now we have to put something back in and he's feeling a sense of guilt now he's feeling a sense of guilt of wow there is a there is a hole now there is an emptiness there is a space a void that must be filled and Will we be able to do this? Can we be able to do this? Which in my mind points towards the fact that, well, if there was a void, if there's a void created, something must have been filling that void, which I think in, in, in our opinions, in my opinion, at least it's, it's God. It's that God shaped hole that mm -hmm. now has to have, that now has to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in the last paragraph, or at least towards the ending of it, you know, it says that he would go into several churches, this madman, you know, he would force his way. I mean, that language is pretty, you know, it's vivid. He's forcing his way. It's not like he's just coming in, you know, as a welcome visitor. He's forcing his way because he wants to force what he's trying to assert in the minds of those around him, in the mind of the, the guy who came into the scene that's saying, I see God, I see God. And in his mantra, he looks at these churches and he says, what after all are all these churches now? if not the tombs and sepulchers of God. So it's like, mm -hmm. because you believe in God and because I'm asserting the fact that there is no God and we have killed him, rather than your church is to be the lifeline of, of humanity, it's rather the graves and the tomb and sepulcher of a once ideal way of thinking upon which society has removed. And I believe in a sense that is true. Society in many cases, especially in Western society, has removed the idea of God. There are a lot of prominent speakers who are dedicating their life to removing this ideal of God. But isn't it interesting to say that many, many people that really follow the stigma when it comes to a serious moment, deep down to the fibers of the flesh um, in their hearts, when someone dies, someone dear to them dies, their natural response, even if they don't care for god their natural response is 
obviously this gives me even more reason to hate God. Naturally, we want to point our blame. So first you went from not even acknowledging that God exists. Now when a serious thing happens to you, now you want to acknowledge that God exists and you want to place a blame because if he didn't exist, you wouldn't have anywhere to place the blame on. I mean, now all your ideals of uselessness are leaving you without something to place your, your feelings of, of anger. And it's because this hurts. And to the deepest core of our hearts, we hurt. And because we hurt, we use various methods to cope with that hurt. Some use the beauty of God. Others distort that beauty of God, which give people more ample reasons to hate Christianity. And then those others just do it by deleting God from their mind. I would venture to say, once again, you may delete God from your mind, but you can't delete morality. And because you acknowledge that there is morality and there is love, you're going to have to wonder where that love comes from. And I see that the reflection of him saying that these churches are the tombs and sepulchers of God, I really realize that he is a tomb and sepulcher of God. He himself and his ideals is an example of someone that has removed any possibility that there is a God yet is venturing off to, to do this. And even towards the end of his life ends up becoming insane. Mm. Insane. I mean, the best way to see how the ideals affect someone is to look at their fruits, to look at how they end out. And the, his fruits really show that this incessant desire to disprove the existence of God messed with his mind. I mean, dedicating his life to prove that there is. And then by the end of the day is what did you gain? All you gained was that life is useless. Wow. That's, that's a pretty big trophy to gain, I would say. Well, yeah. you know, you, you kind of get the, the award now. Yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, now here you go. Here's your award. Life is useless. Mm. And, and now after praising yourself because you've managed to persuade a great multitude to do this, now what you have accomplished is nothing. You haven't really accomplished nothing because deepest down to the core of human beings, there's a desire to hope, there's a desire to love, there's a desire to be loved, and you remove that. And I think that's the greater, that's the greater death, that's the greater blade that you can force within the hearts of humanity apart from christianity i mean taking taking just humanity at its core you're really just stabbing into the very thing that they hold the dearest and that is love hitler and his most atrocious act was fueled by hatred but i mean you look at his past and his past is pretty miserable and in his past shaped his present which ultimately fueled his future which ultimately led to him killing himself Mm-hmm. what a future is that this this yeah. sense of hopelessness what do you lose if you if you believe in god and when you do believe in god why base it just on humanity and the way and the way they act rather than basing it upon the very book that throughout ages has stood the test of time i would want to base my fair hearing on these words to see if the possibility of god existing is true I've, got, I've grown tired of using humanity as my way of understanding who God is in the fullest because we obviously understand that there is humans that are hateful. But I really want to look at these ancient scrolls, so to say, and see of what they attest to God. And then not, not only that, but even look at the deepest core of humanity and 
when I, when I wage both sides, I'm like, wow, there's consistency. There's reason, there's meaning, there's hope. I think that's the very thing that pinned me. I, I was actually, you know, talking to a, to a friend of mine and I told him, I told him, this is what persuaded me that, that the, the Bible, this book and, and the, the person upon which this book is really addressing, which is God and then also humanity. The reason that I personally was persuaded that this book is valid was not prophecy, was not necessarily nature. What really got to me was something that was written thousands of years ago, something that has been relegated to ancient text, addresses every single minute problem that I thought I could hide. And not only that, but it provides a solution. And even things that I think in my mind, when I'm in a car and I'm, I'm feeling this miserable state and I'm, I'm asking myself these questions or I'm even having this dialogue in my mind, I turn to the pages of scripture and it's almost as if this book is reading my mind. I sit there in awe with my jaw dropped like the cartoon, you know, you have that jaw like kind of hitting the, hitting the, the floor with your eyes like wide open, like, what in the world? Like, it, it just couldn't be just some, some man or some, some group of old men with, you know, cloth on and, and just crazy men that decided to write a book that somehow addresses every single issue that needed to be addressed to give humanity a sense of hope, a sense of compassion, and to even provide a answer to the justice that needs to be placed upon the evil upon which we grapple with. And that's really what solidifies the idea that a God even exists. Because upon the book of which we, pro that we, we say and we really promote and, and propagate in the sense that it is the, the literature upon which God inspired is somehow addressing everything that humanity needs. I find more hope in, in trusting those, that parable, in trusting that word than to trust a parable that seeks to incessantly deal with a pain that is obvious to be inside of this madman. And I believe that this madman is only a reflection of the madman that Frederick Nietzsche became, which is ironic enough because towards the end of his life, he became a madman. Yep, that's right. And I've never met a person that has been indifferent to the existence of God. And let me explain that a little bit. There hasn't been a single person that I've interacted with that 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 takes the ex existence of God and is, you know, and, and just treats it as it should be, at least in the in the mind of, of an atheist or in the mind of someone that doesn't exist. Uh, and that's with indifference, just not caring. Either they try to kill God, like Frederick Nietzsche describes here, they try to murder God, or they try to replace God with something else, whether that's with a relationship, another person, with media, uh, music, movies, whatever the case is. But there's never a person that I've interacted with that could just be truly indifferent towards the non-existence of God. It's always a struggle. Uh, and just like you're saying, maybe the best thing for these individuals is to try and 
and and grapple with with the with that notion of why why can't I be indifferent? Why aren't why why can't I just turn my my back to this? Why do I have to replace a void that shouldn't exist because that thing that is supposed to be there doesn't exist initially? At least in my thought, in 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 in, in the in the thought of or in the logic in the mind of someone that is atheistic. Um, and the way that I think of it is, all of us are trying to put a puzzle together. You know, we're trying to fit the puzzles together, the our, 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 the puzzle pieces of our life together. And there is a God-shaped hole, and we try to place different things in there, and it doesn't really fit. Maybe, maybe if we really force it, it can fit, and 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 it does work a little bit, but only if we really force it. Why not try to put, put put God in 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 that hole? Why not try that puzzle piece that, and maybe you've. you've to the side for so long and see if that fits uh, and that's where i'm at is and that was my experience trying to to really put this puzzle together and never really trying god and and fitting it into that place um, and i think people would be surprised to see that when they put god in his place and when they 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 look at the bible which we've been allude, alluding to in its place then it does fit and and, and things start to come together You just listened to the latest episode of the Sparks of Truth podcast. I hope you enjoyed it just as much as we enjoyed recording it. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also check us out on our website, sparksoftruth.org. Sparks of Truth is dedicated to reaching out to those who have questions, those who are grappling with a question of reality, with a question of meaning, with a question of origin, with a question of life. And this is what we as a team are ready to tackle. As I said before, this is a tall glass to order. And we're ready to unfold the story that may answer life's toughest questions. I'm your host, Kenneth Rivera of Sparks of Truth, where it only takes a spark to start a fire.